Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. So church, I'd ask the congregation to stand and please turn to Psalm chapter 4 as we first pray and then read the Word of God. Psalm chapter 4. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a lamp to our path and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Psalm chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, the NASB says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Please be seated. So church, my sermon today is called The Path to Peace, The Path to Shalom. And that title comes from the last verse of Psalm number four, where David says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. So the entire Psalm is a road, it's a journey to that peace. Now, Psalm number four tells us a story. It tells us a story about King David, who was a real historical king of Israel thousands of years ago. And in this story, we find King David moving from a position of conflict to one of comfort. And what this story can tell us in the 21st century is how we can find peace, how we can find safety, how we can find rest in the midst of a trial and unjust persecution. Now I'm going to give you three quick Hebrew lessons this morning. Here is the first. So everyone pull up your desk into Pastor Sadafel's Hebrew class. Here is lesson A. The Hebrew word shalom is translated by the English word peace. But the English word peace doesn't do the Hebrew word shalom justice. 
The English word peace just tends to mean the absence of conflict, as in war and peace. The Hebrew word shalom does also mean the absence of conflict, but it also means a totality, a completeness of life where there is felt contentment and sufficiency in all areas of life. And what Psalm number four does, it shows us how David moves from restless anxiety to rest full shalom. So the first thing David says is, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So the path to shalom, the path to peace, step number one is prayer. Now you may be saying to yourself, Pastor, isn't that obvious? When I get in a trial, when I get into a jam, isn't the obvious thing to do to pray? Is it? Is it obvious? Because the irony is when we find ourselves in trial, we tend to put God on trial. Instead of holding our hands in prayer, we often raise our fists at God and and swing it in the air at him. We put him on the defense stand and say, God, why did you do this? God, why have you allowed this to happen? And the obvious thing many people don't do first is pray because they have the false idea that either God won't help or that he can't help. That's the delusion. The reality is God can help. God will help. And God wants to help. Psalm 50:15 says, "Call upon me in the day of trouble, I shall rescue you and you will honor me." Isaiah 58 to 9 says, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other who has a case against me. Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. And Martin Luther's favorite, Psalm 46 verse 1. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Your prayers has wings, and that prayer soars above the troubles of this life, and it, by grace, opens the door of heaven and gives you a response. So with a fist clenched, you can bang on heaven's door all you want, but the thing that unlocks that door is the graciousness of humble and gentle prayer. So before God gives you peace, he wants to hear you pray. Now what is David praying about? Verse number one, David is praying. What is David praying about? We get that answer in verse number two. Now listen. 
In Psalm number three, David was in physical danger and he was literally in danger of losing his biological life. Guys with swords were coming after him. In Psalm number four, David is not in physical danger. He's in psychological danger. Verse number two, David speaks to those who are coming up against him, who are rebuking him. And he says, sons of men, how long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? The problem in Psalm number four isn't a threat of loss of life. It's a threat of loss of reputation. Because the people who are coming after David are weaponizing deceit. They're weaponizing lies. And here is Hebrew lesson number two. There are two ways to say sons of men in Hebrew. One is Bain Adam. The other is Bain Ish. Why is this relevant? Because sons of men in Psalm number four is Bain Ish, which means sons of a high class. So the people who are slandering David are people who are a big deal. They're politicians, they're celebrities, they're presidents, they're generals, they're people that other people in society actually listen to. And when someone with power weaponizes a deceit, weaponizes a lie, they can not only destroy your reputation, they can destroy your life. They can hurt you so bad, even though you're not physically dead, you may wish you were. Because the world around you crumbles. There's an old axiom set on the playground. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is a lie. Words hurt. And words hurt worse than physical danger sometimes. If you punch me in the face and give me a black eye, give me 14 days, I'm gonna heal. But you give a well-planted lie? Whoa. May take me decades to get over that. This is why Psalm 4 is so crucially important. It's not a war of physical danger. David is in psychological danger. And this is why David prays to God. Because you know why? If he, being an honest person, tries to have an honest, meaningful conversation with liars, you know what's going to happen? He's going to get more lies. He's going to get more slander. So it's pointless to engage with those who are slandering him. So David turns to his God. David turns to our God and he prays to the God, he says, of my righteousness. And what does this word righteousness mean? Righteousness means rightness. It means the act of doing what is required according to a moral or ethical standard. Righteousness means honesty, fairness, and justice. And because only God is righteous, David makes an appeal through prayer to the God who is righteous in the middle of an unrighteous world. 
Psalm 71, 15 to 16 says, My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all the day long, for I do not know the sum of them. I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. Psalm 145, 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. Now David says, O God of my righteousness. Does this mean that David is justifying himself before God? Does this mean David is praying to God and saying, God, I have earned, I have merited, I have deserved something because I have done what is right. Therefore, God, I can justify myself in your presence. May it never be. That is not what David is saying. Because at the end of his prayer in verse 1, he asks God to have mercy upon me. Be gracious to me. Because David realizes that he can never justify himself in front of a perfect and holy God. And he, just like everyone else that professes faith in the Messiah, knows The only way they can receive anything from God Almighty is by His grace, is by His mercy, is by His unmerited favor. When David prays to the God of my righteousness, David realizes that God is the author of righteousness. God is the one who declares you righteous, justification. God is the one who makes you righteous, sanctification. God is the one who maintains your righteousness and preserves your righteousness. God is the one who takes a righteousness that is alien to us, and he imputes it. He takes righteousness that is his, that is perfect and true, and by the blood of Jesus Christ, deposits that righteousness into your account. So now when a God who is righteous makes his children righteous, he deals with you in righteousness. And God's righteousness is therefore expressed as he relates to his people as a father does to his children. And Psalm 72, 1-2 says, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Men may slander. Men may condemn. Men may walk in a path filled with lives. But God is the one who justifies. David then says, You have relieved me in my distress. Relieved comes from a word that means expansion. Distress comes from a word that means constriction. So what David is saying is, God... When I was backed in a corner, when I was pressed in real tight in the past, you are the one who expanded my space. You are the one who grew the area in which I could operate. And David, looking back on what God has done, prays to God that's animated by a certain recognition, that's animated by a certain character. David uses past deliverances 
to animate present prayer for future hope. One more time. In David's prayer, in the midst of a psychological war of lies, David uses past deliverances to animate present prayer for future hope. Because David appeals to the God who delivered him out of trial time and time again. And David is, a, is praying to the God who delivered him nine times before. Therefore, he has faith that God will deliver him on time number 10. So verse 1, David is praying to God. In verse number 2 of Psalm number 4, David now moves from his private prayer closet and begins to direct his attention at those who are slandering him. So observe that in the midst of being lied about, David speaks first to God and then he speaks to men. He doesn't address his slanderers first. He doesn't address those who are lying about him first. He speaks first to God. Then he speaks to the Son of Men. If you speak to slanderers first, what you're going to get is deception. If you speak to God first, what you're going to get is deliverance. If you speak to slanderers first, what you're going to get is weakness. If you speak to God first, what you're going to get is strength. If you speak to slanderers first, what you will get is humiliation. If you speak to God first, you will get Boldness. And so when David speaks to God first, he not only does all of those things, but he also communes and has earnest fellowship with his God. He examines himself and therefore can ascertain and develop a clear conscience before his creator, before he even begins to address those who are lying about him. And now David turns in verse number two and speaks to those who are slandering him. And he says, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? How long implies giving an account for a length of time. How long implies that this war of lies has been going on for quite some time and David wants to know how long will this continue? How long implies the resoluteness, the determination of the sons of men who are engaging in a campaign of lies? And this question, how long, is rhetorical. Because when a person of God turns to the world and asks them, how long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? The answer is forever. The CDC has something right. They tell us that the number one killer of Americans is biological heart disease, but the number one killer of, human, of humankind is spiritual heart disease. It's a spiritual heart that's clogged. Its arteries are blocked. And that diseased spiritual heart loves what is worthless and aims at deception. And if that diseased spiritual heart doesn't gain access to the great spiritual physician, Jesus Christ, 
It will aim at deception forever. That is why we need a savior. That is why we need a deliverer. And if that diseased human heart yearns after lies, when it comes face to face with the truth of God's word, do you know what happens? That heart now finds God's truth offensive. That heart is allergic to the ultimate truth of God's word. Beloved, do you know why the Bible is offensive or why it's regarded as so offensive by so many? Because it is the ultimate standard and barometer of truth. And when a diseased human heart yearns after deception, that which is false, the natural response is to find that truth detestable. It's something to be discarded. It's something to be thrown away. Beloved, for a diseased human heart, the Bible is regarded as offensive because it is. It exposes to that diseased human heart exactly what is wrong. That is the power of God's word. It tears a man into pieces and shatters the image of himself he's constructed and then builds you back up again in the image that God has called you to be. That is why the Bible is called a two-edged sword. Liking results from likeness. So if you have a likeness that's yearning for, engineered to lust after deception, you will have a liking for that which is not true. So how long will my honor become a reproach, David asks. And if we make a connection to the New Testament, and see what happens when the human heart that yearns after deception went up against truth incarnate, truth in the flesh, Jesus Christ. We find a very neat and clear correlation. Because the world gave Jesus a procession of honor as they paraded him, mocked him as he took steps towards the cross. They gave Jesus wine of honor. They gave him a criminal's anesthetic to dull the pain of the torture on the cross. They gave Jesus a guard of honor, men who gambled and placed lots for his garments. They even gave Jesus a throne of honor, that old wooden cross. And they gave him a title of honor, King of the Jews. So how long will my honor become a reproach? Forever. It'll never stop. So with that recognition in mind, now what do we do? Where does our hope come from? Where does our confidence come from? If the sons of men did that to God, if they paraded him, and they crucified him. They wanted him dead. They wanted to get rid of him. And they weaponized lies against him. Where does our sense of boldness, where does our light in the midst of darkness come from? And that brings us to the second step in the path to Shalom. No God's truth. 
And what is God's truth? What is the source of our confidence? Know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. Let's say that again. The step number two in the path to shalom is to know God's truth. And what is God's truth? That you know that the Lord has set apart the godly person for himself. This tells us that when you have a clear conscience and you stand for God and humble yourself before your creator, there will be times where you'll be the victim of unjust persecution, where there are many who aim at what is worthless and aim at deception, will try to degrade you and will try to slander you. But when you know that the Lord has set apart the godly person for himself, your confidence, your courage comes from the facts. That when you are on God's side, those that war against you now aren't just warring against you. They're warring against the God that holds you in his hand. And when you know that, what is there possibly in this world that can make you afraid? What is there in this world that can throw you off balance? When the Lord is the light of your salvation, whom shall you fear? Jesus was crucified, but that wasn't the end of his story because three days later he rose from the dead. Death could not hold him. Why? Because know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. When the little baby Moses, an innocent baby who was defenseless, was moving down the Nile, he was delivered to safely safety. Why? Because know that the Lord has set apart the godly person for himself. I have news for you. This psalm, Psalm number 4, you're not going to go home depressed. You're not going to go home sad. It ends in triumph. Do you know why? Because no. That the Lord has set apart the godly person for himself. And this verse, this source of strength, this source of power, gives us one neat doctrine, and that is the doctrine of election. Election says that a sovereign God chooses you for himself. And when a sovereign God chooses you for himself, you are saved, period, finished. That can't be appealed. No one can veto God's decision. No one can outvote him. So when God, before the foundation of the world, chooses you, by his sovereign grace, nothing will ever, ever change that. So once you are saved, you are always saved. There are many things in this world you cannot be certain about, but you can be 1,000% sure that God's elect are elect forever. In your life, you may move through high peaks. You may move through the valley of the shadow of death. You may move through heights. You may move through depths. You may move through trials. You may move through tribulations. In spite of all of those things, God has set apart the godly person for himself. And so it doesn't matter what the world may say. It doesn't matter what the world may do. Know that when God, by his grace, chooses you, it truly is 
finished. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Ephesians 1, 4, Just as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Election means we are brought into God's company by God's choice and by God's actions. Hence, God will never ever abandon those whom he chooses. Election is not about pride. Election is not about arrogance. Election lifts someone up without puffing them up. Election persuades you to glorify God because you realize he was the one who chose you. And the only thing that can explain that is the grace, is the love of God. It was an unmerited, unearned election. Election means God has you in his hand and written on his hand and is never letting you go. Now this verse qualifies. It says the Lord has set apart the godly person for himself. So who is this godly person? Because that that separation is qualified. So who is the godly person? A godly person is not sinless. Are Are you a human being? Yes. Therefore, you are not sinless. The same person who wrote this psalm, David, also wrote in Psalm 32, verses 1 to 6, he was confessing his sinfulness. The point is that a godly person is not sinless, but their attitude towards sin is that they abhor it. They can't stand it because it's something which drives a wedge between them and the God whom they adore. Godly does not mean perfect. In fact, if you asked a person who was godly, are you godly, they would say by no means because they know what goes on in their thoughts. They know what goes on in their mind and they would be the last person to call themselves godly. Godly does not mean perfect because God does not hear the prayers of perfect people. He hears the prayers of purposeful ones. Godly does not mean you have everything together. A godly person realizes they are not a person without God. Now we're going to enter into the last Hebrew lesson of the day. Because it's only when you read this verse in Hebrew does the the power and the richness of the depth just yell and scream at you. The word godly comes from a root in Hebrew that's formed by three letters. Chet, Samek, Dalet. HSD. From that root, you get the most important word in Hebrew. Hesed. Which means the loyalty, the steadfast love of God. The faithful, true, never-wavering love of God. Now, here's the point. 
What separates Hesed, the enduring steadfast love of God, and the word for godly, Hasid, is only a small change in just a few letters. The point is that the Hesed of God, the loyal, steadfast love of God, and godly, the word for godly, there's only very minor separations between those words. And the point is this. The person who is Hasid, the person who is godly, is someone who in their heart of hearts simply loves God because they have experienced the hesed, the steadfast, unyielding love of God. And they are godly because they love God because he first loved them. Beloved, do you realize that God loves you? When the world says you're a nobody, God says, I love you. When the world spits you out, God says, I love you. When you are told you are nothing, God says, I love you. When you don't love yourself, God says, before you were born, I loved you. And before... Before you came to your senses and realized how much God loved you, he never stopped for a second loving his child. The Hasid, the godly person, loves God and yearns after their Savior with all of their heart, all of their strength, and all of their mind. And do you ever think God would abandon the child whom he loves? Would God ever abandon his elect? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? If God is the one who justifies, who can possibly condemn you? No one. And the doctrine of election tells us that you are as safe now here on earth, regardless of the situation you're going through, as you will be in Christ's arms in heaven. Thank you, Lord. That's where your boldness comes from. That's where your confidence comes from. The doctrine of election. So know that the Lord has set apart the godly person for himself. And if you are God's, no one can take you from him. So step number one, the path to shalom is prayer. Step number two is know God's truth. And the next thing David says is, the Lord hears when I call to him. Now look at the change. David begins the psalm unsure. He's saying, God, answer me. Hear me when I call. Then he strengthens himself in the verse, the doctrine of election. The next thing David now says is a declarative statement. He's no longer unsure. He's no longer wavering. But he says, the Lord hears me when I call, period. 
There's no uncertainty. There's no gray area. He begins the psalm unsure. Now he has the confidence and boldness knowing that he is on God's side because confidence in prayer is predicated on the fact that God has a special relationship with those who have a special relationship with him. But wait a minute. Let's think about this logically. David is the godly person who knows that the Lord has set apart the godly person for himself. That means in times of trial, the godly person is safe. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This changes everything. You thought this was a psalm about David going to be in trouble and being uh, crushed by pressures all around him and crying out to God to help him. But wait a minute. David now tells us the godly person is safe. That means the people who are unsafe are the ungodly because they're not set apart by God. Wait a minute. This isn't a psalm about David because he's safe. It's a psalm about those who are the ones engaged in the slander, the ones engaged in the lies because they are not safe. And here's step number three to the path to Shalom. Know that spiritual danger is the most dangerous type of danger. David now turns to those who are slandering him and says, Listen, guys, know that the Lord has set apart the godly person for himself. You are doing things that are ungodly. The person who's not a victim here is me. It's you. I am safe. You are the ones who are in danger. I may be the victim of psychological warfare, but you are in spiritual danger, defying God's law and spitting in his face. And that spiritual danger is the most dangerous type of danger. So now what does David do? Now the spirit of the shepherd king comes out. Because he is Hasid and because he loves God, his purpose is always to do God's will. So he doesn't close himself off from his accusers. He actually now begins preaching to them. He begins evangelizing. He begins instructing them in how they ought to consider their ways because David knows it's not about him, it's about God. And David now turns to the sons of men and gives them six commands. He says, tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. He says, tremble and do not sin. Tremble means to shake in Hebrew. Therefore, when you consider what you're doing in the context of what God says, you have fear and trembling. Therefore, you don't sin. In modernity, we reverse that. We sin and tremble not. We do what is wrong and never consider what it means in the context of God's law. Tremble and sin not means the evil you are planning should be abandoned because God is against you in it. He then says, meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. David is now compelling all of these sons of men to withdraw from the public arena of life, to withdraw from the area where they're distracted and there's lots of chattering and gossip. 
and to retreat to the tranquil solitude of their beds at night when they earnestly by themselves examine their heart and consider their ways. He's persuading them to pursue a course of self-introspection. And this is something rarely done in modernity. And when a person earnestly examines themselves and considers their ways, if they're honest, they will ultimately realize the vanity and the meaninglessness of sin. And when they begin considering really big questions, they will come to the blatant reality that eternity matters more than the present. And when they embrace that all-encompassing fact, they will entertain the truth that it doesn't matter what an individual person thinks. It doesn't matter what an individual person feels. The only thing that matters is what God says. And when we're talking about eternity, ultimately what matters is if you are right with God. Because if you're not, then you're in spiritual danger, which is the most dangerous type of danger. Then David says, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. And trusting in the Lord is simple. It's the intelligent, rational, logical thing to do when you realize the fact that God is sovereign and what he decrees stands forever. So David begins Psalm 4. He speaks to God. Then he turns to those who are engaged in a war of lies. And now at the end of Psalm number 4, he turns back to God. And David then says, Many are saying, Who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. Who will show us any good? Here's a fact of human nature. People like good. They want a good husband. They want a good wife. They want a good church. They want to hear good preaching. They want a good education. They want a good 401k. They want good benefits. They like eating good food. People like good. In fact, when people who are skeptical ask the question, if there's so much evil in this world, how could God exist? That question is based on an assumption. You know what the assumption is? That God is good. Because there's something ingrained on the human consciousness that yearns for good, that yearns for something better. Because there's so much bad in the world, they want something, a supreme good, that supplants everything that's evil in the world. And in the search for good, people may have a legitimate intent, but they search in the wrong places. They'll search for biological good, things that make them feel good, things that taste good, things that dazzle the senses. They may search for psychological good, like good relationships or good experiences. But this search for good gratifies their passions, but not their spirit. Because the eye of sense can only see but so far, but the eye of faith can see a spiritual good that transcends 
all of the material good in this world. And why should we settle for biological, temporal, natural good now when we can have the best forever? And that's what leads us to what David says next. He says, he's speaking to God, you have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. Here's what David is saying. David is speaking to God saying, you have put gladness in my heart. It is a spiritual gladness, a spiritual joy, a spiritual good. And he's saying, God, that is better than when grain and new wine abound. Listen, grain and new wine is good for a minute. But you know what happens when you drink all the wine and get drunk? You have no good left. Do you know what happens when you take, when you take all the grain and make pasta and eat it? It's gone. No more good is left. Do you know what happens if you're someone who has covetousness in your heart and you always want more and more? You could have tons of grain and new wine, but it's not good because you want more. David is saying, God, you have put something better than grain and new wine in my heart. It's something that transcends biological good. It transcends psychological good. Because I see now, God, I realize you are the one who is more than good. And you have put this all-satisfying gladness in my heart. Because the world may have as much good as it desires, but as Proverbs 14, 13 says, even in laughter, the heart may be in pain, and the end of joy may be grief. So who will show us any good? God will. He is the one who puts gladness in our heart, which is a spiritual good. And joy floods our hearts when we are conscious of the Lord's favor. Now check this out. Psalm number four never says the psychological campaign of lies ever ends. It never says that. So as far as we know, the campaign of lies kept on going after the psalm was completed. But in spite of the fact the trial kept on happening, what did David now have? Gladness in his heart. And had this trial never happened, he never would have prayed to God and he never would have received that spiritual gift from God, which tells us subliminally what reason this specific instance happened and David getting the gladness, the joy in his heart was an answer to his prayer in verse number one. David said, God, answer me. And God responded on his terms by giving David gladness. So David's prayer did not change his circumstances, but it did change him now that he had gladness in spite of adversity. And nothing can fill the eternal hole in the human heart other than an eternal God. Christ in the heart is always better than new wine in the vat. The path to shalom, step number four, the final step, is know that you are only safe in God's hands. Step number four is know that you are only safe in God's hands. 
David closes the psalm by saying, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. So having opened the psalm in anxiety and fear, David now ends it in confidence and peace. There may be many sons of men, but there is only one God. And David could lay down and sleep comfortably because he had a clean conscience before God and therefore knew that God was his keeper and made him to dwell in safety. And as I mentioned before, the gift of trusting God transcends any material good because that gift of trusting in God brings shalom, a totality of being, which means an adequacy for all of life and confidence. And the peace that David achieved, the shalom that David achieved, the end of Psalm number four, is not a cheap or superficial relaxation technique. It's a felt sense of security that allows a person to lay down and rest. For as Jesus said in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Beloved, although life may be uncertain, there is never any uncertainty with God. And as Charles Haddon Spurgeon once wrote, The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests their head at night, giving perfect peace. The sovereignty of God is the best sleep aid that ever existed. And even if you lay down to sleep for your final night on this earth, you will know that you are in safety. You will know that you are in peace in the hands of your Lord and Savior. Now, Psalm number four addressed two different groups of individuals those who knew God and those who didn't. So, I'm going to close this sermon with two messages to two different groups of people. So, first, to those who don't know Christ, to those who do not believe in the Messiah. We are now at the end of 2017. And my advice to you is not to let this year end without seriously considering your relationship with God. For when you lay down in your bed tonight and be still and meditate on life and eternal manners, ask yourself what Jesus asked in Mark 8.37. For what will you give in exchange for your soul? When you stand before God, your creator, what is it that you can offer him? What is it that you can exchange for eternity? Is it doubt? Is it uncertainty? Is it an excuse? How long will you consider the love of God to be detestable? How long will you consider God's honor to be a reproach? Before you lay down and sleep tonight, I beseech you, brethren, to make peace with the Lord, because a person who does not find peace with God will not find peace 
anywhere else. As St. Augustine famously wrote, In you, O Lord, I find rest for my heart, and I was restless everywhere else. And to the believer, to the person who knows Christ and has relationship with him, Psalm number four has a focus on Christ, and we ought to never lose sight of him when reading the psalm. He is the Lord of our righteousness, and by him do we approach the mercy seat of God. Others may seek temporal good in grain and new wine, but this psalm compels us to seek the eternal favor of a sovereign God, because the divine favor of God is better than life itself. The Puritan William Secker wrote, God is enough without the creature, but the creature is not anything without God. It is therefore better to enjoy God without anything else than to enjoy everything else without God. Psalm number four never gives us a solution to false accusations or to injustice, but it does give us a therapeutic answer to said situations, and that is the reassurance of a sovereign God who can be reached through prayer. The path to shalom starts with God, it ends with God, and it follows the path of an individual who has their eyes continually focused on God. The path to shalom began with the righteousness of verse number one and ends with the peace and safety of God in verse number eight. And I'll close by reading Isaiah chapter 32, verses 1, and then 16 to 19, the glorious promise of a peaceful, righteous existence. Isaiah 32, 1, 16 to 19 says, Behold, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will abide in the fertile field. And the work of righteousness will be peace and the service of righteousness, quietness, and confidence forever. Then my people will live in a peaceful habitation and in secure dwellings and in undisturbed resting places. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word, which you have handed to us so graciously. And we thank you for revealing your will to us so clearly and plainly. For as we go through the Psalms, Almighty God, we see how you have provided a blueprint and a roadmap for every particular and unique situation in life. Lord, as we come to the end of 2017, we especially, O Lord, pray for those who have heard these words, who do not yet have a relationship with you. Truly, Almighty God, the world is changing, and we seek, O Lord, that your glorious purposes be fulfilled. So, Holy Spirit, take the words, take the words of Psalm 4, take the words that you inspired centuries and centuries ago, and implant them deep within the hearts, minds, and souls of all those who heard it today. Transform them, Almighty God, from the inside, that they shall arise and they shall assent by your regenerating power to a spiritual good, the thing that is better than good, that is the thing that is eternally the best, having a relationship with the Messiah, Jesus Christ. For, Lord, there are many things in this world that we are uncertain of, but we are certain of you, your Son, and your Word. All glory be to you and 
and to you alone and mold us and shape us step by step every day, O Lord, into the image of, of the one who raised us to new life, Jesus Christ. Amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit WCSK.org. Until next time, peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.